Amen. What's up, Clemson FCA? We doing good? Y'all can't be, like, I'm old and it's past my bedtime. Y'all have to be louder than that. How we doing? We doing good? Okay. All right. We're good. We're good. Well, hey, listen, I'm excited to be with you guys here tonight. Um, I'm just down the road in Anderson. I've been married to my wife, Kirstie, for about going on 14 years this March. We got three kids. Elijah, who is 11 years old, who plays football and has suffered a horrible playoff loss uh, last week, um, 41 to nothing. So I'll just pray. It was close, close. So I'll just pray for our family and Elijah. His NFL hopes, I think, are dashed right now. So um, I'll pray for him. Um, I'm excited to be with you guys tonight. Here, here's the idea. Here's the question that I want to pose to you. And then we're going to get into the scriptures. We're going to spend a lot of time in a chunk of scripture this evening, if that's good with y'all. Here's the question. Do you guys feel pressure? Do you feel pressure? And here's what I would, most of you do feel some form of pressure. It could be academic pressure with your grades, especially as the semester is starting to wind down. It could be pressure to get married as your college career starts. Surely none of y'all are feeling any of that. It could be pressure to get the right job that you need to have lined up as, this, as your college career is getting closer and closer to graduation. There's a lot of different pressure that you can feel. And I want to look tonight at a passage of scripture that deals with this idea of pressure. Because here's what the, the argument I want to make for you. That a lot of us, we're feeling pressure, but it's not real pressure. And the moments in our life when real pressure comes in and it presses in on us, the question that you're going to have to answer is, what is holding up my soul? And when these pressures of the world come upon me, am I stable or do I fold? So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to the book of Daniel. We're going Old Testament tonight. Daniel, Daniel and I'm going to give you some time to get there. Listen, there's no shame if you have a physical Bible and looking in the front of the table of contents to find Daniel. It's okay. Go ahead and do it. Don't shame anybody around you. You can do it. Daniel chapter 3, and we're going to look at most of the entirety of the chapter, Daniel 3, 1 through 30. Let me give you a little bit of context of what's going on as we enter into Daniel 3, okay? So here's the context, you ready? The Jewish people have been conquered, and they've been taken out of their land. They've been taken out of Jerusalem and resettled in the land of Babylon. And there's this king, this ruler of Babylon named King Nebuchadnezzar. And he is, um, let's see, how did I say this night? Crazy. The dude's crazy. And you're going to see as you read through tonight, as we hopefully, maybe you can go and just read the whole book of Daniel, you're going to see that this choker is crazy. And when I say crazy, part of this means that he's going to say one thing one minute, and then he's going to do the exact opposite the next. And if that's the case of what crazy is, then maybe a lot of us are crazy too, right? But here's the context. Here's the setting that we get in Daniel chapter 3. These, these, the Jewish people have been taken captive. They're over in Babylon. And there's been a specific a, a group of people that are young and bright that the king given some leeway to. He's given some authority to in his kingdom. And one of those is Daniel. And then we're going to meet some of his friend, Daniel's friends tonight in this passage. And in Daniel chapter 2, what happens is the, the king has this crazy dream, right, about this huge statue that has different parts of the body that are made of different metals, and he can't figure out what it is. And so he asked Daniel, hey, Daniel, 
what is this dream that I had? And Daniel to accurately tell him exactly what the dream is and what the statue means, okay? And Nebuchadnezzar just praises him, like, you're so great and your God is great and all this kind of stuff, right? And then we pick it up in Daniel 3 and we're going to see what happens. So if you've got a Bible, Daniel chapter 3, starting in verse 1, this is what um, God's Word says. It says, King Nebuchadnezzar made a gold statue 90 feet tall and nine wide and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then he sent messages to the high officers, officials, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the provincial officials to come to the dedication statue he had set up. So all of these officials came and stood before the statue King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. All right, a little bit of understanding what's happening here. So if we remember, Daniel 2, Nebuchadnezzar has this dream of a statue and praises Daniel's God, the God of Israel, for giving him this revelation that he can now understand. What does he do in response to that? He goes and builds the statue, this massive statue, 90 tall. That is extremely tall. And he builds it out in the middle of this plain, and he's telling everybody to come, and they're going to have a worship service. But make no mistake, who's the worship service for? It's for King Nebuchadnezzar. So this is what's happening. He's sending out to all these provinces of places that he has conquered, and he's telling them to come and worship him. It is, it is a next move to show, I am the highest of the high in all of this land. I am the king. There is nobody that is higher or greater than I am. Look at verse 4. Then a herald shout, people of all races and nations and languages, listen to the king's command. When you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, pipes, and other musical instruments, bow to the ground to worship King Nebuchadnezzar's gold statue. Anyone who refuses to obey will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. So at the sound of the musical instruments, all the people, whatever their race or nation or language, bow to the ground and worship the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So here's the, here's the, the feeling of what's happening. There is pressure to bow to this, to this statue. Now, at this point, it's perceived pressure. Because yes, King Nebuchadnezzar is saying, hey, listen, if you don't bow, guess what's going to happen? That furnace over there that we use to build this statue, if you don't bow to it, I'm going to throw you in it. And for some, that may be a threat. I have experienced empty threats and real threats in my life. Let me give you one. I, I grew up down the road in Anderson with T.L. Hanna High School. Any T.L. Hanna people? Anybody? Yeah, hell TL, anybody? All right, got a couple of jackets. Um, so I grew up and went to TL Hannah High School, and I was, um, let's see, how do I say this? Difficult. I was difficult in a lot of different ways. If my wife was here, she would attest to that. And one of the ways that I was difficult, I just like to, I like to cause chaos sometimes, just for the sake of it. And so we had a soccer game, a guy's soccer game. And if you're a soccer player, this is not an insult to you in any way. There just wasn't a lot of people at the soccer games at TL Hannah back in the day. Okay, I'm just, it is. And so we thought that, me and a group of friends thought that would be really fun to go not only support our friends, but to be very loud in how we support and obnoxious in how we support to the tune of having a megaphone when we walked in, okay? And so one soccer game, there's probably, I don't know, 50 people in the stands, most of whom are parents, and then there's 10 of us dead center on 50-yard line, and I have a megaphone, and I'm just going after the goalie, different players on the other team, being super obnoxious. So at one point, I see the head coach for the soccer team. He keeps looking back. He keeps looking back at me. 
I'm like, he's not going to do anything. Like, I've got a megaphone. I'm a fan. I'm safe. I'm a safe distance. So I keep going, keep going. He keeps looking back. He keeps looking back. And then I see him go out in the field to the referee, stop the game, and turn around and say, Stephen Dickey, if you don't shut up, I'm going to have you arrested. And you know what I did in that moment? I said, bring it. Let's go. That's not what I did. You know what I did? I said, yes, sir. Yes, sir. I sat down. In that moment, it was a very real pressure that came. I didn't think he would stop a soccer game for noxious yelling. Then I learned that he would. And all of us have this feeling that we see real pressure versus perceived pressure. Perceived pressure being, hey, I don't think anything's really happened, and so I'm not going to move on anything. Real pressure is, all right, there's consequences to my actions. Let's keep reading to see how this works itself out in the text. Verse 8. But some of the astrologers went king and informed on the Jews. They said to the king Nebuchadnezzar, Long live the king. You issued a decree requiring all people to bow down and worship the gold statue when they hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and other instruments. That decree also states that those who refuse to obey must be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, whom you have put in charge of the province of Babylon pay no attention to you, your majesty. They refuse to serve your gods and do not worship the gold statue you have set up. So a couple things in this text that stand out. The first is this, that, that these three young men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're not loudly trying to say, hey, we're, we're against this, bad, don't do this. Hey, y'all, get, get up, get up. They're quietly and subversively rejecting the idea of idol worship. So they're not making a big, loud noise about it. They're trying to live quietly in this um, province, in this kingdom of Babylon. But it's these accusations by these astrologers are coming at them because they're ultimately jealous and they have malice in their hearts towards these people. Don't miss the fact that they say, hey, these guys whom you put in charge of the province of Babylon. That kind of feels a little bit, hey, I mean, we, we, we bow down. We, if you put us in charge... Not only would we be in charge and do it better than these guys, but we'd also we'd listen to what you say. And so they kind of throw them out in this way of three men quietly trying to take a stand. Now here's the thing. We live in a culture where we love to take a stand as long as it doesn't cost us something. So a couple of ways that I think about this in my life and in some of our lives too. Social media is a way, right? We can take a stand on social media, and for the most part, there's not going to be any consequences that come our way. We can fire off a quick comment, we can throw a quick pout, and we can feel good about ourselves, but then ultimately, no heat's going to come back on us. The idea is this, something we talk a lot about our church, is this idea of things that we're concerned about versus things that are our responsibility. And too, far too often, we leave the circle of the things that are our responsibility and move towards things that are just concerns for us. I'll give you another example of this that can help us a little bit, I think, with the social media idea. Think about how and how many things you know about. You know about so many things that you're not supposed to know about. The child that dies in Kansas, you're not supposed to know about that. But because of social media and the speed of news, you're going to find out about it in an instant. And what begins to happen in us is we see things that are happening across our world, and here's what happens. We become numb to these things. 
We see crimes committed. We see brokenness, evil rampant in our world, and we become calloused to the very things that should break our hearts. Or we become really concerned with things that we have no control over. We see poverty in a different area of the world and we get wrecked with that, yet we don't feel the responsibility to go help those that are impoverished in our own community. So this idea of concern versus responsibility. And so the question comes, again, pressure. When things get difficult, when pressure starts to build, what will you do? Are you willing, are you capable, and are you able to stand against the pressure of the things that are outside when it really comes down to real pressure, not just perceived pressure? Ultimately, when we think about taking a stand today, we're rarely thinking about doing so in a sacrificial way. Instead, we're envisioning a world where we take a stand and then we get used for taking that stand. But here's the thing about taking a stand in anything. You are isolated and alone when you take such a stand. You gotta deal with the consequences that come. Thinking about this reminds me, there was a movie several years back that's called A Hidden Life. Um, It's by a director named Terrence Malick. And if you haven't seen it, I'd strongly encourage you guys to go check it out. Here's, it's based off a true story of an Austrian farmer um, that had given his life to Christ. And he'd given his life to Christ and was living just a small life as a farmer in Austria in the late 1930s. He had three children, three daughters, the oldest of which was six years old. And he had everything in front of him to, to live a great life. And then what happened was the German military, the army came through and started drafting men of his age to come serve in the army. And as a Christian, And as someone who was beginning to see and hear about the atrocities already early on that Hitler and the Nazi regime were doing, he felt, he struggled in his heart of like, if and when I get drafted, I know I have to do something called the Hitler Oath. I have to swear allegiance to Hitler. And I'm not going to, he kept saying. And so his wife would plead with him, when you get drafted, just say it. You don't have to mean it. Just say the oath. Look what all you have to live for. Don't say it. His nurse would say, just say it. Just say it. Well, it gets to a place where he does get drafted, and the moment when they bring all the men in and they give them the opportunity to swear the oath, he does not swear the oath. They throw him in prison. And there's an unbelievable scene in this film where an attorney that the whole village had hired to go help him get out of prison is trying to reason with him. And the, the man's name was Franz. He says, Franz, listen, you can be a medic. You can help people. You just got to swear this oath. You don't have to mean it. And he says, I can't do it. I won't do it. I will not swear allegiance to him. And there's this critical moment of the movie when the attorney looks at him and hits his hands on the table and says, man, don't you want to be free? And Franz says, I'm already free. And I think about if you're in the room tonight and you are somebody that identifies as a Christian. In those moments, could you see your circumstances differently? Or would you try to grab hold of the fleetingness of this world that we live in? And here's the thing. From our standpoint, the the view of what happens to Franz is not a good one. He doesn't get released. 
dies at the age of 36, leaving behind a widow and three young daughters. That's the end of his story. And it looks like victory, but here's what we know if you are in Christ tonight, that Franz's story is immediately the moment they killed him in the presence of his Savior and his Lord. The one who he would not take an oath to is gone. The one admitted to take an oath to, he's able to worship and praise for all of his days. And taking a stand, and here's what I want you to think about, taking a stand is more often than not quiet and measured, loud and boisterous. Let's keep reading, verse 13. It says, Then Nebuchadnezzar flew into a rage and ordered that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought before him. When they were brought in, Nebuchadnezzar said to them, True, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you refuse to serve my gods or to worship the gold statue I've set up. I will give you one more chance to bow down and worship the statue I've made when you hear the sound of the musical instruments. But if you refuse, you will be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. And then what God will be able to rescue you from my power. So what starts as a perceived threat or a perceived pressure now personalized and made very real for them when they're summoned to meet with the king. This pressure is no longer just um, in theory. They can see the king, they can see his anger, they know that he, he means what he says. Let's keep reading verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to give us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. Don't miss this right here. But if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods, worship the gold statue that you have set up. But even if he doesn't, don't miss it, y'all. That is the real miracle in this story that you have three young men that are faced with their own death. And their trust in God goes beyond the fact that he can save them from some fire. Their trust in God is the fact that he is God. And so their, their thoughts are, hey, even if God doesn't save us from this fire, where else are we gonna go? We're not gonna serve this made up God that you're erecting on these plains. We serve the God of Israel. And I think about this, and I think about stories that are going on in our world where people are claiming even if he doesn't in the midst of trials. There are people, you, your loved ones, maybe tonight, that you are struggling with sickness. And you may have a loved one that has a terminal illness. And you want to pray for healing, as you should pray for healing. But don't, don't get it messed up, y'all. We don't pray and we don't look to Jesus as somebody that can just give us things on this side of eternity. As Christians, we can get it messed up sometimes. We th that, that the things that Jesus gives us are our inheritance as believers. Here's the deal, real clear. Our inheritance as believers is Jesus. He's the prize. He's the inheritance. It's not the things that he can do for us on this side of eternity. If Jesus does not heal your loved one from their sickness, it does not mean that he is not Jesus. It does not mean that he is not king. It does not mean that he is not God. And so we have to, as Christians, 
be stable and steadfast in our faith to be able to look out at the context that we live in, the circumstances that we live in, knowing that it is broken. And that in the midst of sickness and suffering and death, we can stand resolute saying, even if he doesn't, I'll never worship these false gods. Even if he doesn't, my faith is unmoved and unwavering in him. The power here of, of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is the center of control. And the need to understand the plan or the path forward. Instead, this is a simple life called to obey no matter what. What we want to do, y'all, is this. We not only want to see God deliver us through our circumstances, we want to know the exact plan and how it's going to happen. And what happens is, we will rush our way through seasons of our life when God is trying to justly teach us things. Some of you right now are going through suffering and you're going through trial and it is extremely difficult. The weight of it feels like you cannot bear up underneath. And let me just let you in a little secret. You can't bear up underneath. You can't. So what would it look like for you tonight to begin to give away your control and to trust in the God who's in control of all things because this is what it means for us as Christians the walk of a Christian is a walk of embracing death so that we might have life it's relinquishing control it's dying to ourselves, trusting in Christ raise us having obedience in extreme circumstances all of these things are forged in the quiet moments of devotion and discipline I was I was told years ago believe it or not like 60 pounds ago I used to run college track and so, maybe like 70 pounds ago, I used to run college track. And, and one of the things that our coach would always tell us was this. He would say, hey, listen, you are going to fall back to your lowest level of discipline. So if you have been slacking off for three weeks with your training and your diet and running, guess what's going to happen when you're super, super tired out there running? You're going to fall back to that level of discipline. And that's true in the athletic world. It's also true in our spiritual life as well. Some of us are wondering why, why is God not speaking to me? Why is my relationship with God dry right now? Yet, with the scriptures in three weeks, we're not praying, we're having sex with our boyfriend or girlfriend. Right, I just don't get it. I don't get it. Why is God not talking to me right now? We're not falling back on our discipline in this way. We are clinging to the things of this world. It reminds me of this idea of dying to self. Um, at our church, we have, we have a plurality of pastors, right? So there's, there's multiple pastors at different one of our congregations. And every week on Thursdays, what we do is we get together and we have a meeting together. And what we used to do is we would have somebody kind of a sign out, um, uh, a topic to, for someone, one of the pastors to go do some research on and then come present, right? Just to kind of edify everybody else. And so um, it, it came to me. I had to go read a book and just write like a little one page and then present on it to the rest of the guys. And so I did that and read this book, one pager. Let me tell you the best one pager you've ever seen in your life. It's unbelievable. It was going to get published and get all these awards. That's what I thought. And so I go in and I, it comes to the point of the meeting. And they're like, hey, Stephen, uh, why don't you share with us what you have? Like, Absolutely. I got this. It's going to be great. Get ready to have your world rocked. And so I share my thing, and this is what happens. The person that's like leading the meeting goes, all right, all right, so next, and moves on. And inside, I, I died inside. I'm like, Ugh. And I didn't know, I was like, what is happening right now? Why do I feel this? 
And throughout the rest of the meeting, what I tried to do, I tried to find little small moments where I can kind of slide in and say something funny or wise or winsome, whatever. And I could, it was like the tightest pastor meeting of history. Like I could not get in anywhere. And so the meeting ends and I go out to my truck and this is the end of the week, go out to my truck and throw my bag in. The only thing keeping me from my family in the week was just me getting in that truck and going. I couldn't do it, y'all. I put my bag in, I go back into the building and look for anybody that's there to talk to. And it was like four o'clock on like a Thursday afternoon and no one's there. I'm like, what are we doing? Are we not working? No one's there. I couldn't talk to anybody. I was looking for anybody just to say hello to, to gain some affirmation. So I go back to my truck, drive down I-85, and I just sit in some of the silence for a while. And I realized how much I was seeking affirmation to fill me instead of seeking the affirmation that I have in Christ. And so as I drove down 85, as I lying inside, Christ was steadily raising me again, telling me truths from the scriptures. But this idea of dying to ourselves so that Christ can raise us is critical, critical to live in a life as a Christian. Let's keep reading. Verse 19. Nebuchadnezzar was so furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that his face became distorted with rage. Um, he commanded that the furnace um, be heated seven times hot usual. Then he ordered some of the strongest men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So they tied them up and threw them into the furnace, fully dressed in their pants, turbans, robes, and other garments. And because the king and his aunt demanded such a hot fire in the furnace, the flames killed the soldiers as they threw the three men in. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, securely tied, fell into the roaring flames. But suddenly, Nebuchadnezzar jumped up and exclaimed to his advisors, Didn't we tie up three men and throw them into the furnace? Yes, your majesty, we certainly did, they replied. Look, Nebuchadnezzar shouted, I see four men unbound walking around in the fire unharmed, and the fourth looks like a god. Then Nebuchadnezzar came as close as he could to the door of the flaming furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stepped out of the fire. Then the high officers, officials, governors, and advisors crowded around them and saw that the fire had not touched them. Not a hair on their heads was singed, and their clothing was not scorched. They didn't even smell of smoke. This miraculous event serves as a foreshadowing of the inbreaking of God's kingdom in our lives. This fourth man, scholars and theologians and commentators will argue over, hey, was this a pre-incarnate Jesus, or was this an angel of God, or who was this? Does, ultimately, that who that was doesn't necessarily matter. Here's what matters. Something divine took place. God stepped in in this moment and protected these three men. And this is the encouragement and the truth that we can cling from this story, from this scripture. And here's the truth. Here's the thing we can cling to. That God is present with his people. That you are going through things right now, guys. That you feel like you're completely alone. And you are chasing things to try to numb and try to give you comfort. But you serve a God who not only empathizes and sees your pain and, and brokenness around you, but wants to meet you there in it. And so as we think about, as a group, what it can look like to see and experience the presence of God in our lives, we've got to recognize some things. We need to think about the ideas about what would it look like to begin to create a greater awareness of God's presence in our life. 
And here's what I would just say. I think for all of us, myself included, what we need is a reorientation in the midst of the world that we live in. We are so distracted, so distracted by everything, everything that we're a part of, the movies we watch, the shows that we engage with, social media, I mean, all of it is the craziest and the greatest time that we can ever live in with access to information. It is also overwhelmingly distracting. I go back to what I said earlier. Some of us can think about, hey, I just feel distant from God right now, yet we're doing nothing to pursue holiness in our lives as Christians. So what would that look like? Three easy things, three easy things. You ready? These are not rocket science. Number one, read your Bible. Read your Bible. The creator of the universe has chosen to reveal himself through his word. And you have that on your phone. There's free copies everywhere you can have access to. There's a thousand different translations that help you be able to have the readability of it. It's in your creator of the universe wants to talk to you. And so often our Bibles are dusty. We are scared about what's happening in our lives and we're trying to seek out comfort from other people or even advice, even from our, okay? But yet we're not going to the scriptures. We're not looking for the guidance and the direction that God gives us. Here's the second thing, praying. What does your prayer life look like? One of the most encouraging things for me even tonight was your peers around this room praying for you. Praying for you. Here's what prayer does. It shows that we're not in control. It cultivates this posture of dependency that we can have. Because here is one of the greatest things that all of us struggle with since the very beginning, since the first sin. Here it is, you ready? We think we're God. And even if we think not God, we want to be God. But here's the good news, y'all. We're creatures. We're created. And we serve one who is the creator. And that distinction right there is not a bad thing. That is a great thing that we are created. And so by praying to our God, it shows that we have dependency upon him in all things. And here's the third thing. So reading your Bible, praying, here's the third thing. Confess your sin. Confess your sin. There's nobody in this room, myself included, that is free from sin in our lives. All of us are sinners, every single one of us. And for some of you that are, have been following Christ for a while, maybe you're even in positions of leadership, and you think, hey, I can't confess sin because if I confess this sin, some consequences are going to come with that. That is, don't, don't believe the lie that that's the right decision. Confessing sin gives us the opportunity not only to depend upon Christ, but also to walk forth in freedom from that sin. For a Christian here tonight, you're no longer enslaved to sin. Instead, you're enslaved to righteousness. And so all three of these things, reading the Bible, praying, confessing sin, all three of these things create and cultivate a posture of dependence upon God, waking us to the presence of God in our lives. And so the, for all of us that are going through trials, the only thing that we can hold on to is that God is present with us. And the miracle in all of this is that we serve a God who is with us. He's present. He is transcendent and above and holy and apart, but he is also imminent. As we get ready to celebrate Christmas as a, as a people, what we're celebrating is that Christ came and was imminent with his people. Let's keep reading. Let's finish it up. Verse 28. It says, Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 
All right, don't miss that, right? He was getting ready to kill, uh, he wanted to kill these jokers. And now he's praised to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sent his angel to rescue his servants who trusted in him. They defied the king's command and were willing to rather than serve or worship any God except their own God. Therefore, make this decree. If any people, whatever their race or nation or language, speak a word against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they will be torn limb from limb and their houses will be turned into heaps of rubble. There is no other God who can rescue you like this. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to even higher positions in the province of Babylon. Now here's something I don't want us to miss because it seems like happy ending, yeah. King Nebuchadnezzar, he's a good dude. Look what he's done. It's important to see what the author's trying to do versus chapter, the end of chapter two, the end of three. What happens? Something miraculous happens. Nebuchadnezzar at one time is gonna kill somebody. He sees the miracle. He sees the big flashy thing happen. And then he says, praise to your God. But here's the important piece, y'all, that he does not do. He does not repent. Nebuchadnezzar does not repent. He promotes these men. He does not go out and tear down the statue. The statue stays saying, hey, this is another God that I can throw in on. And, and culturally, I think this is something that we struggle with. I think we are good with being vulnerable with one another. We're good with saying, hey, this is what I'm struggling with. What we're not good with is saying, and I need to change. I need to change. So what would it look like for us, especially if you're in the room tonight and you're a Christian, to repent? There's two distinctions of sorrow and repentance. You don't have to turn there, but maybe just write it down. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. In that verse, Paul, in that chapter, Paul, the Apostle Paul, talks about a distinction between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow when it comes to repentance. Worldly sorrow is this. I'm really sad about my circumstances. Godly sorrow is contrition about the, my rebellion against a holy God. Let me put it in ethical. You have a husband that cheats on his wife. Okay? And he sees the wreckage of his life. His wife wants to leave him, his children hate him, and he's really sad. And so he comes to life and he says, I'm sorry for what I did. But guess what? He's actually not sorry for what he did. He's sorry because of the consequences of what he did. Think about that in our life, y'all. Think about the things that if we actually have true contrition over our sin, or are we just sad because it's made life a little bit more difficult? Because if we, that's all we're doing, if we're just saying, man, this really stinks because this has happened because of sin and I'm sorry, guess what? That's not, that's not repentance. It's going to happen again. Versus saying, all right, not only have I sinned and made damages and there's consequences to all that, but ultimately I've sinned against and God himself. And so what would it look like for our desires to begin to shift into God's desires? There's line up well. And so think about this. This idea of, of Nebuchadnezzar has this huge statue. And don't miss, if you go back and read, don't miss what the author's trying to do. There's a little bit comedic relief in this text. Look back at, at the first part of, of uh, 3, verse 1. Look about these dimensions. 90 feet tall, 9 feet wide. This is Clemson. We've got engineering students in here, Okay. Does that sound like a stable structure to you, engineering students? Heck no. That thing is tall and flimsy. It's going to fall over. 
And what the author also does, you can do and underline all the times that it says that Nebuchadnezzar set this thing up. So you have this 90 feet tall, 90 feet wide, flimsy structure that they're worshiping. The author's trying to mock this thing. It looks intimidating, but at a point, it can go down and tumble. Those are the things that in our lives that we see as threats, the real pressures in life that are actually pressing in on us, if we cannot stand up as Christians in the midst of a world of circumstances that can do nothing to us ultimately, including death. And that's what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are saying. They're saying, hey, listen, even if we die, we still win. We still come out on top in this way. And so what does it look like for us tonight, for you, to think through the pressures that are just tall, flimsy, they're not real, they're not a real threat, versus the things that are a threat that you need to engage with. So here's three questions I want to leave us with, and then the band will come up and we'll respond in worship. Here's three questions. The first is this. What is the thing that if it was taken from you, would undo you? What is the thing that if it was taken from you, would undo you? We saw with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that they were good, not lo- they could lose everything, including their lives. They were stable and steadfast in that. If you can answer these questions honestly, you answer that honestly, what it ultimately is going to do is going to show you where your hope is. It's going to show you where your hope is. Here's the second question. Are we aware of the presence of God in our life? If you're a Christian, how are you cultivating a listening ear and posture to God? And here's what I say to you if you are not a Christian in the room tonight, okay? If you're not, if you're just here, you got invited, I'm so glad that you're here. And you're like, what the heck is this dude talking about? Shadrach, Meshach, and what? Like, this is wild. Let me just, let me just speak to you just for a second, okay? If you're not a believer, you're not a Christian, I would just ask you to consider your life and even the best days that you have to see and understand that you, if you're honest with yourself, you can see that there's, there's sin in you. There's things that are not good in you. The hardest you try to be good, there's things that are not good. And our scriptures tell us that all of sin have fallen short of the glory of God and that all sin leads to death. And here's the good news for you tonight if you're not a Christian. There's nothing you necessarily need to go do. You don't need to go work hard to earn God's favor. You don't need to go Bible seven times and then come get baptized and then you get saved. None of that's on the table. All you have to do, Romans 10, 9 tells us this, believe in your heart that Jesus died for your sins, that he rose from the grave, confess that with your lips and you will be saved. That's the beauty of the gospel. That's why these men can stand resolute in the midst of opposition and say, you can kill us because our future is secure. Here's the third question. Are we exhibiting worldly sorrow or godly sorrow when confronted with our sin? That's for the Christian in the room. Our hope should not be placed in the things that will crumble, decay, or topple over, but should be placed in the surety of the one who walks with us in the fire. Let me pray for us, and we'll respond in worship. Father in heaven, as we get the chance now to respond to your word, Lord, I pray that you would help us. God, help us to see not only that you are a God who is imminent and present with us, but Lord, also that God who loves us. And so God, for the Christian in the room tonight that is discouraged, that is going through difficulty and suffering, 
Lord, that you would use tonight to encourage them. That there are those who are also suffering, there are all others who have been through difficult times. And over and over again, as we sang earlier, you are faithful to your people. So God, let us take hope in that tonight. And Lord, for those in the room tonight that are not believers, they have not put their trust and faith in you. God, I pray that that would come to a point tonight. That they would see their sin, that they would see their need of a Savior, and they would place their trust and hope in you, Jesus. Lord, now as we get ready to sing and respond, God, I pray that not only will our postures be a posture that would glorify you, but God, as we sing these lyrics out of our mouth, God, help us to be a people that would honor you and glorify you as pressure, as threats, as suffering, as our circumstances that are difficult pile up around us. Let us fix our eyes upon you, King Jesus. With these things, in your holy name, amen.